0: Good morning to everyone watching online. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, and of course, Happy New Year's Eve. If if you did get the chance to join us last week, Christmas Eve, or maybe you tuned in online, then you know that we wrapped up our Advent series last week, and then next week we're actually going to start a brand new series through the Gospel of Matthew. But today what we're going to do is a standalone teaching, so it's not going to be part of any bigger series. So I thought this would be a very fitting opportunity to talk about a very important topic, which is the return of Jesus Christ. So you might be wondering, like, well, why do you say that's fitting? Which is a great question, so let me answer that for you. It's fitting for at least two reasons. First, I don't know about you, but I still consider this to be part of the the Christmas season. My tree is still up at home. You can see behind me, lights are still out. I'm still listening to a little bit of of Christmas music. And and the whole point of Christmas, really, is that we look back to Jesus' first coming so it's only natural to also use that as a time to look forward to His second coming, and Scripture itself actually makes that connection for us. You can hear it in Hebrews chapter nine, verses twenty-six through twenty-eight. So let me just read that to you very quickly. It says, "Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself." So that's His first coming at Christmas. He appeared once for all to deal with sin, to die on the cross. That's why He was born at Christmas. But continue into verse twenty-eight. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So there's his return, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christmas is a time not just to look back to Christ's first coming, but also to look forward to his second coming. But, but this topic really is fitting for another reason right now as well. Today is literally the end of one year, and tomorrow is the beginning of a new one. And isn't that really what Jesus' return ultimately represents? The end of the old and the beginning of the new. And and this is the time of year when, when people often eagerly look forward to what's coming. They eagerly look forward to the new year because it's almost like a refresh like a, like a starting over point for people, and and we just saw in Hebrews nine, that's exactly the same kind of attitude that we're called to have towards the Lord's return—to be eagerly waiting for, to be eagerly looking forward to it. So, if you happen to see uh, the title for this teaching, maybe you saw it on the YouTube thumbnail or in the email. At first, you might have thought that sounds like clickbait, but it's not. I really I really meant every part of the title. So, the title for this teaching, maybe a little tongue in cheek, is "The End Is Near." Looking for the Lord's return in 2024. And the end really is near. The end of 2023 is right here at us. And as we just saw, we should be living every day, eagerly waiting and looking for the Lord's return. Whether or not it actually happens in 2024, we should always be looking for it. So, so to help us do that, to help us have that kind of mindset moving into this new year, I want to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11, that's going to be our main anchor passage where we hang out today. We'll bounce around a little bit, but that's going to be our main passage. Let me go ahead and read those verses to you in their entirety before we dive into the details. Here's what it says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So for the remainder of our time together, I just want to walk you through these verses by really dividing them into two parts. First, we're going to look at three truths about Jesus' return And then we'll transition and look at three attitudes we should have towards Jesus' return. And I realize as I say that, that that some of you are going to be already doing the math in your head and thinking, is he disguising a six-point sermon as a two-point sermon? And the answer to that is yes, I am. But there's nobody here to stop me because I'm recording this online, so I'm going to do it anyway. Let's go ahead and get started. This is The first part of this teaching is three truths about Jesus' return. So, so obviously that's the theme. I've been saying that a lot, Jesus' return. But you might have noticed in this passage, it never explicitly says anything about Christ's second coming or his return. It doesn't use that language. So how can we be sure that that's what this is even about here in 1 Thessalonians 5? And the answer to that is because in verse 2 we see the theme of this passage is this phrase, the day of the Lord. We'll talk more about it in a second, but let me just define that for you in terms of the Old Testament. This is is not a phrase that Paul made up. It is used all throughout the Old Testament. It's very common, and it refers to a time when God will come to save his people and judge evil once and for all. Once we get to the New Testament, the New Testament authors, like Paul, make the very clear and obvious connection between that day of the Lord and Jesus' return. So so the Old Testament authors, they were prophesying about this event in the future, but they couldn't see completely how it would come to pass. They couldn't see that the God who's going to come and save and judge, that God is actually Jesus Christ. So all of these 11 verses are about the day of the Lord, Jesus' return. And, And the first truth that I wanna pull out from this passage about that event is also found in verse two. So let me just read it to you from the beginning. It says this, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, and here's the part I want to emphasize, will come. So so the, the first truth here about Christ's return is that it will happen. Paul here speaks of it as a sure and certain event. One of the things that I really love about Severn Covenant Church, if I can brag on this church for just a moment. One thing that drew me here even before I came on staff was something that, that Pastor Ryan has actually <clears throat> mentioned before, and, and he says it like this. So I'll, I'll try to quote him as best as I can. We are a church that does not believe you have to check your intellect at the door. And the reason that we're like that as a church is because Christianity is like that as a religion, as a belief system. I was listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day, you may be familiar with that name, famous astrophysicist, he hosts the PBS Nova series, does a lot of interviews, especially on late night shows. He likes to popularize science, very smart man. But I was listening to him online the other day and he was talking about how he doesn't personally believe in God because there's no evidence for him. And so let me just read you his quote, these are his words. He said, religious people, Believe something in the absence of evidence. That's why it's called faith. Now, with all due respect to Mr. Tyson, who's obviously a very smart man in in lots of other areas, smarter than me in lots of other areas, he's just simply wrong about that. Faith, by definition, is not believing something without evidence. That's not what faith is. When you read across Scripture, it's very clear that faith is trusting in someone or something. Because there is evidence of their trustworthiness. That's what faith, is. the one place in the Bible that actually comes the closest to actually explicitly defining faith in Hebrews 11 actually uses the word evidence. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is not believing things without evidence. It's trusting in something because there is evidence for its trustworthiness. So I imagine, I imagine there's quite a few of you that are listening to me right now who have actually come to believe in some of the core teachings of Christianity, like, like creation or the death and resurrection of Jesus. At least in part, you've come to believe those things because you've seen evidence for them. But I also believe that there's some, some of you who would say, I just don't see the return of Jesus in that same light. In other words, if, if, you, could, if you could make your thought process explicit, It would probably sound something like this. Like, I I see how those other teachings are reasonable and compelling, I just don't see that for Jesus' return. I mean, it's been over 2,000 years, and despite countless numbers of people across the century saying that it's right around the corner, it hasn't actually happened. So it just seems hard to buy into the return of Jesus Christ. I think there are a lot of committed Christians, people who are really committed to following Jesus, who just aren't buying into his return. They just don't believe it. Either admittedly they don't believe it, they just say it, or they reinterpret it to mean something else, or they don't believe it functionally, like it has no bearing on the way they live and they just don't think about it at all. So, so what I want to do with this first truth, this, this truth of the certainty of Christ's return, is I want to show you, just, I want to take just a second to show you that not only is this a reasonable belief, it's also an essential belief. So first, just, just consider that Jesus himself taught his disciples that he would return a second time. If you read through the Gospels, you can see this very clearly. I'm actually going to quote a couple of those places here in just a few minutes. But, but you might be thinking, well, that's, of course, that sounds kind of elementary. I know that. But here, here's why it's important to remind you about that. If you believe in Jesus because you have found the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection to be compelling then logically it makes sense to also believe what he taught. If this man really died and rose again and you see evidence for that, then he's somebody whose teachings are worth listening to. The most solid foundation for believing in the truth of Jesus' return is the fact that Jesus himself taught it and you found Jesus to be trustworthy. So, so if you're out there, if you're listening to me, and this idea of Jesus' second coming is a stumbling block, for you actually accepting Christianity and putting your faith in Christ, what I would say to you is don't start there. Start with Jesus himself. Look at the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection. And what I believe, what I sincerely believe is you'll find that compelling. You'll find the person of Jesus irresistible. Start with Jesus, come to faith in him, and then believe his teachings, one of which is his return. But, but let me make it clear, it wasn't just Jesus. After he ascended to heaven, His apostles, his disciples who founded the churches, who took the gospel around the world, they also taught the truth of his return as an essential belief. We can see that right here in the letter to the Thessalonians. This is one of the earliest letters that we have that was written to a church, probably written about 20 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And keep in mind, it's written to a group of people about a thousand miles away from where Christianity started. So written very early, written very far away, and yet, what does Paul say to them right here in verse 1? He says to these believers in this church that they have no need for anything to be written to them about Jesus' return. Why? Because he says in verse 2, you're already fully aware of it. And the reason they're fully aware of it is because when Paul founded this church himself, he taught them the truth of Jesus' return as an essential doctrine. And that's not just a one-off. It's not just like he just taught that to the Thessalonians, but the rest of the churches didn't get it. No, no. If if you read across the New Testament, according to the Reverend Billy Graham, I think most of us are familiar with him, Jesus' second coming is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. So, So I think it's clear, based off of everything we just said, That from the very beginning, the truth of Christ's return has been a core, non-negotiable belief for followers of Jesus. So hopefully that's clear, but I know that still begs the question, well, if it's so important and if it's so essential and if it's so reasonable, why hasn't it happened yet? And one thing I love about the Bible is, listen, the Bible doesn't answer every single question we have. It would have to have an endless number of pages to do that, but it does not purposefully shy away from difficult questions. It actually tackles this one head on. I mean, from the very beginning, just decades after Jesus left this earth, people were already asking, when's he coming back? We can see this. If you, if you jump over, we'll come back to 1 Thessalonians in a minute, but just jump with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. So this is written by Jesus' best friend, Peter. And Peter here is quoting skeptics and says this, they will say, the skeptics will say, where is the promise of his coming? See, that's the exact same question people still ask to this day. They were asking it from the beginning. And Peter is going to go on in this chapter, 2 Peter 3, to give us really two answers for why Jesus hasn't returned yet. And these two answers really, really come down to two things, God's nature and God's character. So let me just read you this passage, and then I'll explain what I mean by that. So this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Remember, the question that Peter's responding to is, Where's the promise of his coming? Here's the answer. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach. Repentance. So, so really the first thing that Peter's saying here is that, is that God, who is the very creator of time and space, exists outside of time and space and therefore he doesn't experience it like we do. think think about the author of a book, the author of a story. The author of that story does not exist in the story. They're outside of it. And so there is a real sense in which the author knows the entire story from beginning to end, really in a single moment. They, They know it all. And think about it this way. An author of a story, they could spend a whole day just writing a few minutes of dialogue within the story. Or... Or they could write centuries worth of events in the story and it only take them a few hours to do. The point being the author is not bound by the space and time of the people in the story in the same way. God is the author of our story outside of it. And so he's not bound by space and time. He doesn't experience it like we do because we are characters in the story. That's what Peter is trying to get across here when when he talks about a day being as a thousand years and vice versa. Now now here's another way to think about this whole time-space thing is consider Jesus' first coming. The Bible, actually, when it talks about Jesus' first coming, it uses this phrase, "the fullness of time." He came at the fullness of time. That's just a fancy biblical way of saying the perfect timing." But, but consider that for a moment. Jesus was not born as a human being until thousands of years into human history. Depending on your scientific perspective, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of years into human history. So obviously, God's Perfect timing is not the same as our timing, and that's one reason that we can understand why Jesus hasn't come back yet. We, we have a certain idea of what soon means, but soon means something very different to the God who created space and time and who is outside of it. So that's one reason, God's nature. By his very nature, he's above and beyond us and our experiences. But there's a second reason Peter gave us here in 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's God's character, Remember, I said this just a second ago, that the day of the Lord is not just a day of salvation, it's a day of judgment against evil. And God's heart is that people would turn from evil and turn to him in faith so that when Jesus does return, they'll actually be ready to meet him. And so, so like Peter says, one reason he hasn't sent Jesus yet is out of loving patience for people who aren't ready for Jesus to return. So we've got God's nature and God's character as explanations for why he hasn't returned. So that's our first truth. Jesus' return is certain, even though it hasn't happened yet. Hopefully you can see why that's reasonable to believe. Now that brings us to the second truth about Jesus' return that we see in this passage. I'll go ahead and give it to you, and then I'll unpack it. Here it is. Our experience of Jesus' return will depend on our relationship to Jesus himself. So throughout, throughout 1 Thessalonians 5, we're back in our anchor passage now, you, you might have noticed that Paul is contrasting two groups of people, people who are in the dark and people who are in the light. And we know, it's pretty obvious, that the people who are in the dark, what he means by that is people who have rejected Jesus. People who are in the light are people that have accepted and received Jesus because Jesus is the light. Jesus himself says that about himself. And, and the different way that each of these groups will experience Jesus' return is made very clear for us in verse nine. So 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine says this, for God has not destined us for wrath. Us, Paul is about himself and the other Thessalonian believers, people living in the light. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for followers of Jesus, his return will be as experienced as a a day of salvation, a day of rescue. But the implication here, if you flip that around, it's very clear is that if you're living in the darkness if you have not received Christ then you will experience his return not as a day of salvation but as a day of God's wrath and i realize by saying that that that's not a very popular idea and and, and maybe you're thinking well you're misinterpreting that anthony if you go back up to verse 3 he actually calls it sudden destruction so you really can't wiggle out of what's being said here, even though it might be uncomfortable. But, but, but I think one reason why we get offended in our culture about this idea of God's wrath, one reason we find it so uncomfortable is, is at least partially because we are so sheltered and comfortable as 21st century Americans. What I mean by that is, is for, most of, for, for most people through most of history, they have not lived lives like we have lived. Most people for most of history have seen and experienced firsthand violence and evil that most of us have only watched in movies or read about in books. There's a gentleman by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's the professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. Very smart man. He actually grew up, though, not in the United States, but in Croatia. And if you were alive in the 1990s or if you've studied that, that period of history, you know that in the 1990s, Croatia broke out into sectarian violence violence. There was ethnic cleansing that went on. And Miroslav Volf's own father, years before this, actually was imprisoned in a communist labor camp. I tell you all that before I quote him here to just show you that he's got a little bit of authority on what he's about to say. He, he's probably experienced or has a connection to human evil in maybe a deeper way than a lot of us do. So what, what, he, what he has to say here carries a little bit of weight. Listen to what he says in response to people who who are offended by this idea of a God of wrath. These are his words. To the person who is inclined to dismiss belief in divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of your imaginary lecture to these people is a Christian attitude toward violence. Your thesis or your argument is we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon, he says in this imaginary lecture to these people who have suffered so much, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea that God will not judge, that idea will invariably die. Now, I realize that's that's a little bit of a dense quote. His point there is, yes, as Christians, we are clearly called to not retaliate, but not because God doesn't retaliate but precisely because he does. We can let go of vengeance because we know God will avenge. So, in other words, whereas we may see the wrath of God as offensive, people like like he described who have experienced firsthand the depths of human evil, many of them will see the wrath of God as justice and relief. But also you need to realize that, that God is not simply a God of wrath. That's not all that he is. I mean, God sent Jesus the first time to actually make a way for us to escape his wrath. That's, that's really the entire message of the gospel is that all of us as humans have rebelled against our loving creator. We have not loved him and honored him the way that he deserved. We have not loved and honored the people made in his image the way that they deserve, and therefore we deserve his wrath. But in his great love for us, he sent his own son and his son came willingly to absorb that wrath in our place by dying on the cross. That's the message of the gospel. That's why God sent his son the first time. So in, in the same book that I just quoted, Professor Volf goes on to say this. Here's another quote from him. God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they've done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Now, of course, there is a real, there is a biblical sense in which God does judge people because of the evil that they've done. They deserve his judgment in that sense. But what Volf is saying here is really what, is just what Jesus says himself in John chapter 3, verse 18, so we're all familiar with John 3, 16. We all like to quote that. It's a great verse, but just two verses from there, listen to what Jesus says and compare it to what we just heard from Professor Volf. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned? Here's the answer. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So before Jesus returns, right now at this very moment, he is standing with nail-pierced hands, open wide, arms open wide, calling and pleading for people to come and be safe from judgment and from the wrath of God, to come and be saved because he took the wrath upon himself. So those who are finally judged and condemned will be the ones who resisted and rejected his embrace to the very end. So that's the, that's the second truth about Jesus's return. We talked about the first one, it is certain. We talked about the second one, which is our experience of it will depend on our relationship to Jesus. Now we come to the third truth, which I think for many of you, you will find to be the most relevant, just because of things that are going on in the world right now. So here it is. The third truth about Jesus's return is that it will be both unexpected and expected. So by this point, I would imagine that most of you, at least to some degree, are aware of what's going on in the nation of Israel. So back on October the 7th, the terrorist group known as Hamas took advantage of a a Jewish holiday that was going on to basically ambush Israel. And so they, they, they went in and they killed, tortured, and took hostage Israeli soldiers and civilians, including women, children, and babies. And some of those people are still held hostage even right now as we speak. So Israel then launched attacks into Palestine. Also, those are continuing to this day. The the reason I'm bringing this up is because I I know a number of, of Christians, quite a few Christians, whether personally I've talked to them or I've seen these videos on YouTube, who see what's going on in Israel as a potential sign that jesus's return is right around the corner like it's about to happen and and the reason they they see it that way is because there seems to be some passages in scripture that maybe point in that direction so 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 these people have talked to me or i've heard them talk about prophecies in in ezekiel chapter 38 in the old testament or you could even go to prophecies that jesus himself made in places like matthew chapter 24 where jesus will talk about wars and rumors of wars being in some sense signs that will precede his return. So, so before I say anything else, else about that, let me just be really clear. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong about trying to discern the times and the seasons that we live in. 1 Thessalonians 5 actually calls them that, the times and the seasons. Nothing wrong with that, but let me, let me just put up a, a little bit of a caution light. Okay, not, not a red light, just, just a little bit of a yellow light here, just a little bit of a, a slow down. And, and and what I mean by that is, is, is it is indeed possible that the war in Israel is a sign of Jesus' return. That's that's possible. But it's not the only sign. The Bible talks about other signs. One of them is actually mentioned right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. Let me read it to you. It says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So think about that. Jesus said wars and rumors of wars. Now, Paul is saying peace and security. So you have to ask, which one is it? And to quote a famous preacher I know, the answer is yes. The answer is both. Actually, if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars coming before his return, if you go just a little further into that chapter, Jesus will talk about how before his return, it will be like the days of Noah. And then he describes them like this. When people will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And in other words, it's going to be like normal. It's going to be like peace and security. So so how can we make sense of these seemingly contradicting signs that both come out of Jesus' mouth? Peace and war, how do we make sense of those signs? And, And here's one answer to that. Maybe not the only answer, but one answer to that. At any given moment, as depressing as this is gonna sound, at any given moment, there is a war raging in the world. I don't know that there's ever not been a war somewhere in the world during history. At the same given moment, there's peace and security somewhere in the world. So, so, so there really are signs preceding Christ's return. But if we take all those signs in the Bible together, instead of just isolating one or isolating the other and saying, that's the sign. If we take all these signs together, what what, what we have to arrive at, the conclusion we have to arrive at is that trying to predict the timing of Jesus' return based on these signs is no simple task. And that's exactly the way it's designed to be. That's on purpose. Actually, look at the metaphor that Paul uses here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. He says, the day of the Lord will come like what? Like a thief in the night. And Paul didn't make up that metaphor. He's actually borrowing it from, you guessed it, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24. So let me just read that to you. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. So this is Jesus speaking. I want you to to think about how similar this sounds to what Paul has been saying in 1 Thessalonians 5. And you can see, I think very clearly, Paul is borrowing this from Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, stay awake. Paul also says to stay awake. We'll get there in a minute. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Day of the Lord, you hear that? But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, thief in the night, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, so what is Jesus trying to communicate by using this thief-in-the-night imagery? It's actually very clear. He explicitly tells us the whole point of, of calling his return and using the image of a thief in the night is to say that we do not ultimately know the day that he's coming. Those are Jesus' words. He is coming at an hour we do not Expect Now, in Thessalonians, Paul applies that to people that don't believe in Jesus. Obviously, they're not going to expect it. But here, Jesus is very clearly applying that to even people who believe in him. He says, the day of your Lord. You don't know when that's going to come. He's talking to his disciples. So even for followers of Jesus, there is a certain sense in which Christ's return is going to be unexpected. It's going to come in an hour we do not expect, but... That's not the only metaphor that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 3, he also describes the return of Christ not just as a thief in the night, but as labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. I think that's probably an image that everybody understands, a a pregnant woman knows that some point in the future she's going to have labor pains right as, as a matter of fact she can kind of have a, a pretty decent idea of the of the general time frame when they're gonna when they're gonna start right like oh it's it's nine months I'm probably gonna start my labor pains now by the way this is my pregnancy watch. It doesn't have hours on it. It has months on it. Hopefully you're laughing at home because I'm in an empty room and I'm telling jokes to nobody. But but pregnant women, they have a general idea of when those, those, those labor pains are going to start, but they can't know exactly when. So, so now you see there's a sense in which they're expected but they also come unexpected. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly the way we should think about Jesus's return. That's why when you get to verse four, he says that that day should not surprise us like a thief in the night. It's gonna be like a thief in the night, but it shouldn't completely surprise us. So if we go back to Jesus's master of the house analogy, he's talking about a homeowner. We need to be like the homeowner who may not know exactly when the thief is gonna break in, But they've received an inside tip that that thief's been casing the house, so they're going to be watching and they're going to be ready. We need to be expecting the unexpected. That's how we should be approaching the timing of Christ's return. So so what we really need to do to wrap this up before we move on, we need to join these two ideas together so that on the one hand, we really are looking for and expecting Jesus's return. But on the other hand, we don't lose heart when when Jesus doesn't return after what appeared to be a sign. How can we keep those two things together? And the best approach that, that that I've ever found is the approach of a theologian named Wayne Grudem. He wrote a very popular systematic theology. And in that book, here's how he explains this. Here's how he brings these two things together. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's really important, especially considering how relevant this topic is right now. Here's what he says. In the ebb and flow of world history, we see from time to time events that could be the final fulfillment of some of the signs of the Lord's return. They happen and then they fade away. During the blackest days of World War II, it seemed very likely that Hitler was an antichrist. During times of persecution against the church, it can seem more likely that Christians are in the middle of the great tribulation When we hear of earthquakes and famines and wars, it makes us wonder if the coming of Christ might not be near. But then these events fade into the background and world leaders pass off the scene and the tide of events leading to the end of the age seems to have receded for a time. Then, once again, a new wave of events will break on the world scene. And once again, our expectations of Christ's return is increased. With each successive wave of events, we do not know which one will be the last. But here's the key part. And this is good because God does not intend us to know. He simply wants us to continue to long for Christ's return and to expect that it could occur at any time. So so those are the, the three truths about Christ's return that the New Testament considers essential. Of course, there are other essential truths about Christ's return, but especially in this passage, we're told that we should be fully aware of these things. So, so here they are. I'll, I'll sum them up. Although we do not know the exact timing of his return, could be this year, it could be in a hundred years, Jesus is definitely coming back to rescue those who believe in him and have accepted him and to judge those who have resisted and rejected him. And therefore, we should be living every day of this new year eagerly waiting and longing and expecting for his return. But of course, that brings up a really good question. What does it actually look like to live that way? And that brings us to the the second and really shorter part of our teaching today. So we've talked about three truths about Jesus's return. Let's now transition the same way Paul does in this passage to talk about three attitudes that we should have towards Jesus's return. And we see the very first attitude in verse six. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Here's what Paul says. He says, so then, that's a really important phrase. That that means based on all the truth I just told you about Jesus' return. Got to have the truth first. That's the foundation. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So so the first way that we should live in light of Jesus' return is by being awake and sober. In other words, what that means is think about it in the context of everything else that Paul has said here. We should not allow any amount of prosperity or what he calls peace and security. We should not allow any amount of peace and security in our lives or in the world around us to distract us or to make us so comfortable that we become lazy and sleepy in our pursuit of following Jesus. When our bank accounts are in the black and our bellies are full and our beds are warm it can be really easy to convince ourselves that maybe the world's not really that bad after all right and maybe maybe this rescue mission that Jesus is returning to perform maybe it's really not as urgent as i thought it was right maybe maybe why am i having to get up so early every Sunday to go worship with other believers. I mean, life is pretty good right now, right? Do, do I really need to keep setting aside time in my busy schedule to pray and to read this ancient book? And, and do I really need to be joining a small group? Or do I really need to be exercising that much self control or sacrificing to serve others? We could keep going with that list, but that is exactly what it sounds like to be spiritually sleepy and drunk on the deception of peace. And security. Now, now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we should not long for or enjoy peace and security when we have it. In another letter, the very same Apostle Paul actually commands us to pray that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. That's his phrase. Nothing wrong with peace and security. But in the middle of peace and security, we have to soberly realize that even though, even though Jesus has defeated evil through his triumph on the cross, evil is still present and powerful in the world that we live in. It's like a defeated army on the run. It's trying to inflict as much damage as it can on its way out before it gets cornered and captured. So this mindset of, of sober wakefulness, what it does, it recognizes that at any given moment, there could be one person in this world soundly sleeping, full and loved and safe, and at the same moment, another person tossing and turning, empty, And abandoned and at risk. And if the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, what it's taught us is that the peace and security that you're enjoying today can become a distant memory as soon as tomorrow. Because none of us, none of us are promised health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. So so being awake and being sober, one way to think about it, it's really like the biblical middle ground between two wrong extremes. On the one hand, we can look around at all the bad things in the world, and we can become pessimists and conspiracy theorists. On the other hand, we, we could look around and just be naive optimists who bury our heads in the sand, and neither of those are right. Being sober and awake, that means what you are is a grateful realist who looks around and you see how bad the world is, and you know it needs to be rescued, but you don't lose hope and you don't lose joy because you know it's going to be rescued. So that's the first attitude, be awake, be sober. The second attitude we find in verse 8. Let me read that to you. Paul says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So attitude number two is we should live every day clothed with faith, hope, and love. And what's interesting about about that verse is those three virtues are described as pieces of battle armor. And at the very least, what that's designed to do is remind us of what we just talked about, that we should be soberly aware that the world we live in is a battleground. There are evil forces trying to harm us and defeat us. And the way that we defend ourselves against that evil is not by clothing ourselves with things like fear and paranoia, and hatred, and division. That's not the answer. What we're just told here in verse eight is the way that we defend ourselves against that evil, the armor that we must put on, is faith. We must trust in God more deeply. Trust in God more deeply. This is not in my notes, but, but not trust in, in people more, not, trust, not put our trust in, in Joe Biden or Barack Obama or any number of political leaders. That's not how we defend ourselves against evil. We defend ourselves against evil by faith in God. We we defend ourselves against evil by putting on this armor of what else does he say? Hope of longing confidently for Jesus' return. Not the next election, not the the next president, not not the next congress member to come in. The hope for the longing of Jesus' return. And what's the third thing? Love. We defend ourselves against evil with love. Passionate, sacrificial love, especially, especially for the people that aren't ready to meet Jesus when he returns. Our our faith in Christ and our hope for his return should not selfishly drive us into doomsday bunkers where we lock the world out. Our faith in Christ and our hope for his return should lovingly drive us out to compel the rest of the world in before it's too late. So that's the second attitude. We need to be clothed with faith, hope, and love. Now we come to the third, the final attitude that we should have towards Christ's return at the the very end of this passage to conclude and sum up the whole topic of the second coming of Christ, Paul says this in verse 11. Therefore, therefore, based on what we know about Christ's return, encourage one another and build one another up. The more that followers of Jesus really understand and really long for Jesus to return, the more we should encourage and build each other up. Unfortunately, I have often seen Christians Do the opposite. And if I had to be real honest, I've done it myself. So you're saying, well, what do you mean, the opposite? Let me let me describe it for you. This is what I have seen in my experience. Maybe this is gonna mean nothing to you, but but if if not, just hang in there with me for a moment. What this looks like to do the opposite is is instead of encouraging my brother and sister in Christ. By having conversations with them about, you know, the joy of seeing Jesus face to face and and our tears being wiped away and being reunited with loved ones and having brand new bodies that'll never get sick again. Those are clear, beautiful truths about Christ's return. Instead of encouraging my brother and sister with those kind of conversations, what I've seen happen is, is we will distract or confuse or discourage our brothers and sisters by obsessing over and arguing over unclear speculations about Christ's return. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Let me just throw out some examples. We we will argue and obsess over whether or not the war in Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy or whether or not people like Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama or Bill Gates were the antichrist. Those are real people that people have said were the antichrist, that's why I named them there. Or, or we'll argue about whether or not the COVID vaccine is a precursor to the mark of the beast, or whether or not that blood moon that's in the almanac is a sign that Jesus is gonna return in that month. And we could go on and on and on. And, and if you think I'm picking on people, when I say I'm not picking on people, I've talked to people who, who, have, who have mentioned those things, and many of those people, I know they love Jesus, they really do love Jesus. So let me be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with being intrigued by those things or or looking into them or talking about them. Nothing wrong with that. But I also need to be clear about something else. So I'm gonna be as clear as I can here. It is problematic, even more than that. It becomes sinful when when you become so fixated on those unclear speculations that, that you take the return of Jesus Christ and you wield it as a weapon to tear your brothers and sisters down instead of as a tool to build them up. Because that's what verse 11 is talking about. Seeing the return of Christ as a tool we use to build each other up. We should be holding up the truth of Jesus' coming as a light to help our fellow brothers and sisters more clearly see their destination so that they can keep moving forward and following Jesus. So 2024 could be the year when the Lord returns. Or it could not. We don't know the timing of his return, but we do know how we should be living when he does return, right? That's exactly what we've been talking about. And these three attitudes that we just pointed out, they're they're not something that we're supposed to wait to adopt until we see the signs. You know, like little kids who hear mom and dad coming, like, oh, they're coming, hurry, hurry. Start cleaning the room. We were just playing, but we were supposed to be cleaning the room. That's how a lot of us, I think, approach Christ's return. Like, I got plenty of time to get this all together. If, if, if that's what you heard, you missed the entire point of 1 Thessalonians 5. The entire point in that passage is if you want to have your eyes open, if you want to be ready to meet Jesus and not surprised by his coming, you need to be living with these attitudes right now. And so, again, if you wake up tomorrow, January 1, 2024, and you're wondering, how should I approach this new year? What should my focus? What should my attitude be? You can be certain of at least one correct answer. You should be living every day of this new year with your head lifted high, looking to the skies, eagerly expecting Jesus' return by, number one, staying sober and awake to reality. Number two, keeping your heart full of faith, hope, and love. And number three, cultivating a spirit of encouragement for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you hear all that and you say, how in the world is it possible to live like, I got a lot going on. I can't live like that. And the answer to that is you're right. You can't live like that. You cannot do that on your own. For starters, you cannot live with eager expectation in Christ's second coming if you have not received his first coming. You can't look forward to your destination if you're still in the dark. And haven't received the light. So so if that's you, if that's where you're coming from, I don't mind saying this one more time. I'll say it as many times as you need me to. Jesus Christ came here the first time to take your sin upon himself to absorb the wrath of God so he could put your sin away. And now, to quote Miroslav Volf again, he is standing with his arms open wide, nail-pierced hands open wide, calling and pleading to you to come into his embrace. And so I call and I plead as well. Come to Jesus. Come to him this new year. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. And what you'll find is hope. Not just hope for a new year, but hope for all eternity. But maybe you're listening to me and you've already done that. You've already received Jesus' first coming. You have the light in your life, the light of Jesus' salvation. But really, I say the same thing to you. These attitudes we talked about, this way of living, you still can't do it on your own. Think about who Paul was writing 1 Thessalonians to. He wasn't writing it to an individual. He was writing it to a church. You and I need A community of committed followers of Christ filled with God's spirit where we can be taught and reminded and challenged and poured into. And where we can have a safe place to to practice these attitudes and where we can be equipped so that we can go out into the world as ambassadors to try to get the world ready to meet Jesus Christ. And besides, Jesus isn't coming back just for you. He's coming back for everyone who calls him Lord. I know this is a very sappy phrase. I hate to use Christianese, but but, but I'm going to do it because I think it's going to make sense. But your fellow followers of Jesus really are your forever family, right? They're your forever family. So you might as well get used to being around them right now. And what better time to do that than a brand new year We're about to start a brand new series through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And I know you're thinking, man, that's a shameless plug for Severn Covenant Church. And yes, yes it is. It is shameless because I genuinely love Severn Covenant Church. And I believe that if you'll come hang out with us for a little while, that not only will you grow in your love for us, but more importantly, being in this place among these people filled with the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you will grow in your love for God. And so I say all that to say, I hope I see you here next week in person as we start our series through Matthew. And I hope, I hope that every single one of you listening to me wakes up tomorrow longing and eagerly waiting for and expecting the return of Jesus Christ. We don't have to live in fear because we know our Lord is coming back to rescue us. That's how I hope we approach 2024. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus the first time. Out of your great love that you didn't owe to any of us, out of your overflowing abundant love, you decided to rescue us even though we didn't deserve it, even though we couldn't pull ourselves out of the pit we had ourselves in. You sent your son Jesus to come and live like us, sympathize with us, feel what we feel, take all of our burdens on himself and carry them away on the cross. What magnificent love. But even beyond that, now you promised to send him a second time to bring heaven to earth. What an amazing promise. And I just pray that every single one of us, myself and everyone listening to me, would be ready for that day. I want everyone to experience that day as a day of joy, a day of rescue, and not a day of wrath. So God, as we approach 2024, first and foremost, may everyone listening to me embrace the risen Savior. Let me say that a different way, God. May we all come into his embrace because he's the one that needs to hold on to us. And then I pray that you would work in us by your spirit and by your word through our church community, you would work in us soberness and, and wakefulness to the reality of this world. That you would that you would clothe us with the armor of faith, hope, and love every every single day, God. And at the same time, at the same time, Lord, you would help us to cultivate a spirit of encouragement for our fellow brothers and sisters, especially in a world that can be so dark and so painful and so evil. Thank you, Lord for the end of 2023 thank you for getting us through another year thank you for the the hope of a new one may we lift up our eyes and look for Jesus's return and be eagerly waiting for it we ask all of these things in his name amen